Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Iris and to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. It's Friday, February 17th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Let's look at today's weather forecast from KCRG. Quiet and colder today. Nice weekend ahead. Our most recent system has moved off to the east now, leaving behind a cold start to your Friday. Plan on wind chills below zero to start your day, eventually moderating to the teens by afternoon. The sunshine will help for sure, with the highs generally into the 20s. We still expect a nice weekend, with highs into the upper 30s to lower 40s each afternoon. While the wind won't be too bad, a weak front coming through on Sunday morning may feasibly kick out some gusts of 20 mile per hour or so. Either way we look at it, it's a good weekend, though, with no Arctic air around. We're watching for a potential system next week. The weather turns active again in mainly that Wednesday to Thursday time period when yet another winter storm looks to impact the Midwest. While details can't be ironed out at this distance, a big picture does raise a flag that it's probably worth watching. It seems a mix of rain, sleet, freezing rain, and snow are all on the table, and multiple states could be involved, including Iowa. It seems we are on that storm on a Thursday cycle, and it could very well repeat next week. In the meantime, enjoy the weekend. The sun rose this morning at 7.03 a.m., and it will set this evening at 5.44 p.m. Looking at the front page of The Courier today, we have these stories to read. Proposed standards high for pipelines, for the birds, Pence rails against transgender policies, and let's begin reading the top story, Governor Signs Malpractice Cap. New law limits doctors and hospitals' liability on non-economic awards. Story filed by Aaron Murphy of the Courier's Des Moines Bureau. Dateline Des Moines. Cash awards for pain, suffering, and other non-economic complications from medical malpractice lawsuits will be capped under a new provision signed into law Thursday by Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds. Those non-economic damages in medical malpractice cases are now capped at $2 million for cases in which a hospital is found to be at fault and $1 million when the doctor is at fault. The new law, which becomes effective immediately, does not cap jury awards for economic or punitive damages. Reynolds, during a public bill signing event Thursday in her formal office at the Capitol, said the non-economic medical malpractice caps were a long time coming. Her statement was met by a knowing murmur from the dozens of doctors and healthcare officials who had been invited to join the event. Reynolds said the new law marks an important day for health care access in our state. We're in a much better position to recruit and retain physicians in our communities and really preserve access to care for rural Iowans, Reynolds said. Proponents of the legislation said it was needed to help contain insurance costs for hospitals and to help recruit and retain doctors. Iowa has been among the 22 states without a cap on non-economic awards in medical malpractice lawsuits, according to a 2020 report from New York Law School Center for Justice and Democracy. Of the states that share a border with Iowa, 
Wisconsin, South Dakota, Nebraska, and Missouri have caps on non-economic damages in medical malpractice cases. Minnesota and Illinois do not. Of the roughly 160 average annual medical malpractice lawsuits that have been filed in Iowa since 2017, only 8% went to trial, according to analysis from the state's nonpartisan legal and fiscal analysis division. Representatives from the community have pointed in particular to two judgments from 2022 in Iowa, a $97.4 million award to a family whose newborn suffered brain damage when its head was crushed due to health care providers using improper procedures during delivery, and a $27 million award to a man whose case of bacterial meningitis was misdiagnosed as the flu, quote, to recruit the best and brightest to keep these providers in Iowa. We need to have a stable practice environment, said Kevin Kincaid, the CEO of Knoxville Hospital and Clinics, who was invited to speak at the bill signing event. This bill is a crucial step forward in helping Iowa to be a more attractive place to practice medicine, a place for folks to move their families and to be part of this great state. We believe this bill is fair compromise in balancing the need for access to high-quality care. The new law, in the form of House File 161, divided state lawmakers along unusual political lines, while mostly Republicans supported the bill. Only one Democrat voted for it. It was opposed by a mixture of Democrats and the more socially conservative Republicans who likened the proposal to placing a monetary value on an individual's life. Opponents of the proposal also noted that other states with medical malpractice caps also are struggling to find doctors. They said insurance reimbursement rates are a far more pressing issue. The Republican state lawmaker who guided the bill through the legislative process in the House and supported its passage, Representative Ann Meyer of Fort Dodge, lost her five-year-old son to what she described as a medical error. Quote, I was very angry at the time as well, Meyer said during debate over the proposal. Quote, no amount of money will bring Nick back, and I feel that loss every single day, unquote. Next, we have a story filed by Caleb McCullough titled, Proposed Standards High for Pipelines. Dateline Des Moines, carbon dioxide pipelines, would face large hurdles to being greenlit in Iowa under a bill proposed by a group of House Republicans. It would require pipeline companies to obtain 90% of the miles along their proposed route through voluntary easements before being granted eminent domain authority. It also would block the Iowa Utilities Board from granting a permit to a pipeline company until a federal regulator has laid out new safety guidelines carbon pipelines. The bill, which is co-sponsored by 22 House Republicans, including Speaker Pat Grassley, looks to address concerns from landowners along the more than 1,500 miles of carbon dioxide pipeline that three companies have proposed in the state. Other provisions in the bill, which will be introduced Monday, include the following. The Iowa Utilities Board could not grant a permit for a CO2 pipeline unless it is in compliance with all relevant local zoning ordinances. 
also, of CO2 pipeline companies must have successfully acquired all other state permits before being granted a permit in Iowa, and CO2 pipeline companies would be required to give regular progress reports on easement acquisition, and finally, landowners would have more opportunity for compensation from eminent domain and options to challenge violations of restoration standards. Speaking with reporters on Thursday, Representative Steve Holt, a Republican from Denison, said the inspiration for the bill comes from opposition to using eminent domain to build the privately owned projects. Holt said eminent domain should be used only for essential government services. The 90% threshold was established in part on recommendation from the Iowa Farm Bureau, Holt said, and because it's a number he thinks House Republicans can broadly support. Quote, I have an issue with other people's property being taken for what is an economic development project, and I think that's where we confuse public use for public benefit, he said. Last year, the House passed a bill that put a one-year pause on new permits for the projects, but the proposal failed in the Senate. Landowners and activists who oppose the use of eminent domain have been asking lawmakers to pass a stronger measure that would remove the power of eminent domain entirely from CO2 pipelines. Jess Mazur, Conservation Program Coordinator for the Iowa chapter of the Sierra Club, said she thinks the 90% threshold does not go far enough. Quote, I'm glad that they are taking it seriously, but we really need to have the strongest thing possible, not just put a Band-Aid on it, Mazur said. She also would like to see the limit at 90% of parcels rather than miles, so that smaller landowners aren't disadvantaged over large landowners. Democrats have said they would support legislation that bolsters landowner rights and ensures pipelines are safe. Quote, we're going to want to look at any piece of legislation to see that landowner rights are protected, to make sure that people have a say in how their land is used, and that if we're using eminent domain, public good is a part of that conversation. House Democratic leader Jennifer Confirst said that on Thursday. Speaking to reporters on Thursday, Governor Kim Reynolds did not say whether she would support or oppose the measure, but she emphasized the importance of the pipelines to the ethanol industry as a key part of the decision. Quote, I'm sure there's areas where we can tweak and make it better, but we just need to make sure that we're having an open and honest conversation about what the consequences could be moving forward, Reynolds said. Three proposed pipeline projects are in the process of requesting approval from the Iowa Utilities Board for construction across the state. Summit Carbon Solutions, Midwest Carbon Express, would build 680 miles of pipeline concentrated in the northern and western parts of the state. Wolf Carbon Solutions Pipeline would cover four counties in eastern Iowa, and Navigator CO2 Ventures Heartland Greenway would stretch for 900 miles from the northwest to the southeast corner of the state, with offshoots along the way. The pipelines will shuttle carbon dioxide emitted from ethanol plants to reservoirs deep underground in other states, 
in order to meet certain low-carbon standards, take advantage of federal tax credits, and improve the profitability of Iowa's ethanol industry. According to a study commissioned by the Iowa Renewable Fuel Association, Iowa could lose 75% of its ethanol plants if the pipelines do not move forward. In a statement, Summit spokesperson Jesse Harris said the company has received voluntary easements from 1,075 Iowa landowners along the route, accounting for 67% of the proposed route. Harris said the projects would be vital to Iowa's economy and the ethanol industry would lose $10 billion a year without them. Quote, a full two years after we announced our carbon capture project, we remain hopeful that the legislature will not change the regulatory rules in the middle of the game, particularly with the overwhelming level of support we have among Iowa landowners, he said. Wolf Carbon Solutions has not signaled an intent to use eminent domain for its project, and a spokesperson said the company is not planning on using it. A spokesperson for Navigator said the company does not see any changes needed to the permitting process. Senator Jeff Taylor, Republican from Sioux Center, and Re- Representative Tom Janieri, Republican from Lamars, have introduced bills that would further limit CO2 pipelines, including a bill that entirely repeals eminent domain authority for the projects. The Pipeline and Hazardous Material Safety Administration, a division of the Department of Transportation, sets safety standards for CO2 pipelines. The agency is in the process of reviewing its rules in response to a pipeline burst in Sataria, Mississippi. Those rules likely won't be ready for at least a year, and Holt said he wants to hold off on permitting new projects until the regulations are finalized. Quote, our understanding is that there are new safety guidelines coming within the next 12 to 18 months. And so, we're concerned about waiting until those new safety guidelines come out, based upon some of the things that have happened recently with the pipelines, Holt said. Our next story is titled, For the Birds, and it begins with a photograph of two young girls sitting on the floor, and the photograph is taken from above. Both of the girls are holding binoculars, and they have bird lists and cameras there with them on the floor. The story came from the Associated Press. At 25, backyard bird count shows power of citizen science globally. It's a given that when the great backyard bird count begins Friday, Steve and Janet Kistler of Hart County, Kentucky, will be joining in. They've done so every year since the now global tradition began 25 years ago. For Moira Dalabar, a middle school math teacher, a couple of hours away in Lexington. This will be her first count. She's leading a group of students and parents to an arboretum for an exercise in data gathering. They're expected to be among hundreds of thousands of people around the world, counting and recounting every four days. Last year, about 385,000 people from 192 countries took part in the Great Backyard Bird Count, or GBBC. Quote, every year, we see increased participation, and 2022 was a big jump, said Becca Rodomsky-Bish, 
the project's leader at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology in Ithaca, New York, which organizes the count along with the National Audubon Society and Birds Canada in India, which had the highest participation outside the U.S. last year. Tens of thousands of people submitted bird checklists and 28% increase from 2021. This global data goes into the eBird database used by scientists for research on bird populations, which have declined sharply overall in the past decades. It's part of a rise in citizens' science projects in which volunteers collect data about the natural world for use by researchers. And if it gets more people interested in bird watching, so much the better, says Steve Kistler. Quote, it's fun and important to get the numbers, but it's also a joyful thing to do, says Kistler, 71, who leads bird watching trips near his home and abroad. Many bird watchers use eBird year round, and it has collected huge amounts of data, often between 1 million and 2 million bird checklists a month from around the world in the past couple of years, said Radomsky Bish. Those numbers help researchers track the ups and downs of various species, which then helps determine the direction of conservation efforts. Quote, the net number of birds around the world, we're losing them, says Radomsky Bish. A 2019 study by Cornell researchers found there were 3 billion fewer birds in North America than in 1970. Quote, the bad news is that the declines are coming out strong and hard in the data. Radomsky Bish adds, quote, the good news is if we didn't have the data, we wouldn't know. And that helps a lot of areas take direct action. The pandemic contributed to the surge in interest in the GBBC and birds in general, she says. Birds were company during this period of isolation, she says, and observing them is an acceptable way to connect with the natural world. Birds are everywhere. You don't have to leave your house. They will come. And they're charismatic. They're fun and fascinating to watch, unquote. Compared with other counts, including Audubon's 123-year-old Christmas bird count and the Cornell Labs Project Feeder Watch, the GBBC is accessible to beginners. Here's how it works. Participants watch birds, whether that means looking out the window for 15 minutes or taking a longer trip to a nature area. Organizers recommend the Merlin Bird ID app to distinguish birds by size, shape, song, or other characteristics. Many participants also carry field guides and binoculars along with their phones. They then enter the findings into the eBird app. Quote, anyone can say, I can contribute to science. It's easy. I can identify one bird over a four-day period, and I've done my part, says Radomsky Bish. Counting in February, she says, provides a snapshot right before many birds start their annual migrations. Dalibor, who teaches at the Redwood Cooperative School in Kentucky, has been preparing her classes with information about local species and practicing with the Merlin app. The kids will record bird sightings with pencils and clipboards, and parent volunteers will enter those numbers on phones. Quote, it'll be authentic data that we collected ourselves 
that real scientists are going to use. There's purpose and action behind it, which is special for them, being connected to the wider world, Dalibor says. Giving young children an appreciation of nature is the priority for Ganeshwar S.V., director of the Salem Ornithological Foundation in India. He helps get schools involved in conservation programs, including the GBBC, and says the goal, quote, is not to count, but to just enjoy the birds, unquote. Next, we have a story from Tom Barton of the Courier's Des Moines Bureau, Pence Rails Against Transgender Policies. Former Vice President Targets Public Schools Left-Wing Culture War. Dateline Cedar Rapids. In a precursor to a potential run for the White House, former Vice President Mike Pence took aim Wednesday at the Lindmark Community School District and its transgender-affirming policies during a rally in the early GOP nominating state. Quote, no one should have a greater role over what our children are learning or the values they're being taught than their parents, Pence said to a room full of parents and supporters at a pizza ranch in Cedar Rapids. The Linmar policies, adopted last year but largely in place in many other schools, districts, as well, spell out inclusive practices for transgender students, including giving them access to restrooms, locker rooms, or changing areas that correspond with their chosen gender identity. Students in the seventh grade or above could request a gender support plan that calls for teachers and peers to address the student by a new name and new pronouns. The policy keeps it up to the students as to whether to notify parents. Pence said, quote, Average Americans have been dragged into a left-wing culture war that has invaded our schools, our colleges, and our workplaces. Quote, Every day, we are told that not only we have to tolerate the increasingly bizarre obsessions with race and sex and gender, but we have to enthusiastically participate or face severe consequences, said the Republican former vice president. Quote, and nowhere is this problem more severe than in our public schools. In addition to gender-affirming policies, Pence also mentioned critical race theory, calling it state-sanctioned racism. The broad-based term was developed in the legal field and largely taught in law schools and other graduate-level settings that racism is systemic in the nation's institutions. Many Republicans have since cast it as a culture war effort to rewrite American history and convince white people that they are inherently racist. There is little to no evidence, though, that it is being taught to K-12 public school students, though some ideas central to it, such as lingering consequences of slavery, have been. The rally was part of an outreach campaign by Advancing American Freedom, a group formed by Pence in 2021 and financed by his supporters. The campaign, which will include digital ads, rallies, and events, seeks to combat policies it says effectuate students' gender transition without parents' knowledge and restore parental rights, unquote. The visit coincided with oral arguments before the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals in St. Paul, Minnesota, in a case brought by a group representing parents of Linmar students against the school district. Advancing American Freedom filed an amicus brief 
along with 20 other pro-family organizations, in support of the lawsuit against Linmar. A judge last fall denied a motion for an injunction sought by the group against the district, saying it would block students from any protection from harassment and bullying on the basis of gender identity and would prevent the school from disciplining such harassment and bullying under the federal and state law, as it is required to do. The policy ensures public schools are productive, safe places to educate children, and to ensure no child is subject to harassment, bullying, or made to feel lesser for any reason by students, staff, and others while at school, the court ruled. The parents who filed the lawsuit argue the policy allows school staff to create a gender support plan without the consent and assert their fundamental right to make decisions about the care, custody, and control of their children, according to court documents. They also fear children could be unfairly punished for not using a student's preferred pronouns or voicing certain opinions concerning transgender issues. None of the parents, though, assert their child had been given a gender support plan without their consultation or that any child has been disciplined for any misuse, intentional and repeated or otherwise, of another child's name or pronouns. Quote, everybody has a right to go to school and be safe, said Amy Wichtendahl, a Hiawatha City Council member and the state's first transgender elected official. Quote, we're here for the freedom of all students to live authentically, unquote. Wichtendahl was among a group of roughly 50 protesters who held American and LGBTQ pride flags and signs that read, quote, Love welcomes all, trans rights are human rights, and don't legislate hate. The issue has become a rallying cry with conservatives across the state. Now we turn the page to the Cedar Valley section and we read the Metro Briefs column. Area Churches Aid Harvest of Hope, Dateline Waterloo. Harvest of Hope, in its 18th year of helping alleviate world hunger, sent a total of $25,700 to Growing Hope Globally for 2022 to support projects in Paraguay, Kenya, and Tanzania. Three area churches participate in the project, South Waterloo Church of the Brethren, as well as St. Timothy, in Zion Lutheran Churches of Hudson. Local participating farmers and businesses include Barley Farms, Rosselow Brothers, and Kevin and Diane Sittig of Waterloo, Brad and Lynn Ort of Rhinebeck, and P&J Equipment of Laporte City. Over the past 18 years, this local growing project has raised $406,660. These dollars have helped 7,393 people move toward food security. It costs $55 for someone involved in one of the Growing Hope programs to become food secure. For more information on Growing Hope Globally, go online to growinghopeglobally.org. To become involved, contact South Waterloo Church of the Brethren at area code 319 232 3125. Next, Oddfellows Dinner set for Sunday, Cedar Falls. The Independent Order of Oddfellows Lodge 
will be hosting a Swiss steak and ham dinner on Sunday from 10.30 a.m. to 1 o'clock p.m. It's open to the public for dine-in or carry-out. The lodge is located at 402 West 2nd Street. Next, Waterloo Church gives away food. Apostolic Pentecostal Church of the Cedar Valley at 1645 Downing Avenue will be hosting a food giveaway from 4.30 to 5.30 p.m. on Sunday. For more information, call area code 319-231-3383. The church is affiliated with the Northeast Iowa Food Bank. Next, Waterloo Schools sets conferences. Parent-teacher conferences are coming up for all schools in the Waterloo Community School District. They will be held Tuesday, 4 to 7.30 p.m., and February 23rd from noon to 8 p.m. School will not be in session on February 23rd and February 24th. And next, pancake supper planned for Tuesday. Our Redeemer Lutheran Church at 904 Bluff Street is hosting its annual Strove Tuesday Pancake Supper on Tuesday. Supper will be served from 4.30 to 7 o'clock p.m. and includes all the pancakes you can eat, plus sausage and applesauce. Cost is $7 for five years through adult and free for those under five. The public is invited to attend. Next, Button Club plans to meet. Waterloo, the Blackhawk Button Club, will meet on Wednesday from 1 to 4 o'clock p.m., at St. Paul's United Methodist Church, 207 West Louise Street. The program will be a demonstration and hands-on activity to make a fabric and button greeting card. The meetings are always open to the public. Anyone interested in the art, history, and preservation of buttons is welcome to attend. To view some of the club members' collections and button crafts, see a display at the Cedar Falls Public Library during the month of February. For more information, please contact Anna at area code 319-415-7550. And the last one is BPW to award five scholarships. Cedar Falls. The Cedar Falls Business and Professional Women are accepting applications now through April 15 for a total of five $1,000 scholarships, two $1,000 Marie Robinson Memorial Scholarships will be awarded to eligible applicants who are non-traditional undergraduate nursing students. In addition, three $1,000 scholarships will be awarded to non-traditional undergraduate students. Application and instructions can be found on the group's Facebook page, Cedar Falls Business and Professional Women. To be eligible for consideration, a completed application and required support documents must be submitted or postmarked by April 15th. For additional information or questions, contact Mindy Doyle, President, Cedar Falls Business and Professional Women, at Post Office Box 1164, Cedar Falls, Iowa, 50613, or email to bpwcedarfalls at gmail.com, or call Area code 319-230-4782. And now, listeners, at this time we want to remind you that you're listening to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, February 17th on IRIS, 
the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now, let's turn to today's obituaries. Bellevue Nancy Sue Henze Olson, 77, of Bellevue, formerly of Waterloo, passed away on Wednesday, February 15, 2023, at her home surrounded by her family. A private celebration of life will be held at a later date. Local arrangements are entrusted with Hatchman Meyer Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Bellevue. Nancy was born July 12, 1945, in Waterloo, Iowa. The daughter of Henry and Audrey Fordyce Henze. She graduated from Waterloo East High School in 1963 and then earned an associate's degree from Gates College. Nancy married James K. Olson on July 30, 1966, in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. She worked for Controlofax in Waterloo for 30 years, then Office Concepts for 10 years, before retiring and moving to Bellevue, Iowa, to be closer to family. Nancy cherished her time with family and friends, reading, watching movies, and spending winters in Florida with Jim. The family would like to thank all the staff of Hospice of Jackson County, especially Irwin, Angela, Kim, and Diane. Thank you, Drs. Chris Stile and Mark James. Memorials and condolences may be mailed to Hackman Meyer Funeral Home at 100 North 6th Street in Bellevue, Iowa, 52031, in care of Nancy Olson family. Online condolences may be expressed to the family at www.hackmanfuneralhome.com. Next, in Minot, David McKinley, 88, Minot, formerly of Waterloo, Iowa, died Thursday, February 9, 2023, in a Minot assisted living facility. David is survived by his children, Diane, spouse Alan Fright, and Sherry, spouse Mark Morrison. A service will be held at 10 o'clock a.m. on Monday, February 20th, 2023, at Journey Church in Minot, North Dakota. To view a live stream of the service or share memories and condolences, access his obituary at www thomasfamilyfuneralhome.com. Interment will be at Rose Hill Memorial Park, Minot, North Dakota. Visitation is Sunday from 1 o'clock p.m. to 3 o'clock p.m. at the Thomas Family Funeral Home in Minot, North Dakota. Memorials are preferred to KHRT Radio or Youth for Christ. Now here, the courier lists death notices for two people. Lois, known as Jean Baldwin, 96, of Waterloo, died Wednesday, February 15, 2023, at ProMedica Skilled Nursing and Rehabilitation. Arrangements for Lois are with Lock Funeral Services at Tower Park. And Richard, known as Dick L. Selvig, 68, of Charles City, died Tuesday, February 14, 2023, at his home. Arrangements are with Fullerton Hague Funeral Home and Cremation Services in Charles City.
That was the last of the obituaries in today's Courier. Now let's turn to the opinion section. Our first editorial comes from the Storm Lake Times pilot, written by Art Cullen, titled, The Iowa Way is Really a Big Corporate Con Using Jesus as a Prop. We are led to believe that the gay bashing and book banning are some sort of unique Iowa grassroots thing, a mom's uprising in defense of decency for fear that the elementary holiday music concert will turn to a drag show. Moms for Liberty are showing up at school board meetings, raising cane over dirty books, and the governor says that if one is banned in Orange City, it shall be so in Storm Lake. School voucher bills are being pressed across the Midwest, funded by charter school companies that stand to make a fortune. It is not because of the good parents of St. Mary's prayed long and hard for God to open up the government's eyes and treasury to the value of a good Catholic education. Guns are being handed out to teachers and secretaries in Cherokee and Spirit Lake schools as voters approved a gun rights amendment to the state constitution that pretends to supersede the Second Amendment to the United States Constitution. It was funded by Beltway Political Action Groups. The Iowa Supreme Court has been remade after Iowa family leader, whose leader Bob Vanderplatz hauled in wheelbarrows of money from out of state to unseat three justices who ruled that we must not discriminate against gays. The refashioned court rules that there is no right to abortion and, by the way, that agrochemical complex shall not be regulated. The real objective, local opposition, is organized against wind turbines using science fiction produced somewhere that claims harm to human and animal health from noise and flicker. They say the towers are a blight on the horizon, otherwise unimpeded by trees, but massive consolidated livestock complexes are not. These turf grass groups produce bunk that reads like academic work such that you can fool a fool. Where do they get this stuff, and how does it get repeated by then-President Donald Trump in Cedar Rapids? How does it get legitimized? The Moms for Liberty is a group organized in Florida that receives big donations for its political action fund that spreads the word to gay-fearing moms across the country. More than 200 anti-gay bills have been introduced in state legislatures. This is not just the work of Ron DeSantis and Kim Reynolds responding to their body politic. It is, in fact, a play by the corporate power structure to consolidate years of investment in building a certain sort of order. King Henry had the Church of England to impose his moral diktats. Constantine used the Holy Roman Empire. The people who run the United States, Charles Cook, Goldman Sachs, and Grover Norquist, among the select few, decided long ago that they could control the country through the pulpit and the radio airwaves by feeding them a familiar narrative. The heathens are out to get your children. While you're looking for God, they're picking your pocket. To wit, we intend to eliminate the state income tax to free the Farm Bureau and the rest of the financial industry from the burden of public schools. There cannot be a discussion in schools about how we robbed the Iowa people of their land between the Raccoon and the Des Moines rivers, because it may suggest that there's something wrong with the system that predicates itself on dominion. It is my right, 
indeed my Christian obligation, to exploit land and beast and people who are defined as lesser, blacks, Mexicans, Muslims, Asians, whoever you need as an enemy to distract you from how you are getting screwed out of the farm. It's all about money, always has been. It's not about your soul. It was about the money when the Illinois Central, powered by Chicago's elite, protruded west of Dubuque to bring the love of Christ to the native people and drive them farther west until they could be driven no more. When we starved them, froze them to death, abused their children, and hanged them for not being Christian and for being in our way. That was no organic grassroots evolution. It was a campaign of terror based on Genesis. It is written into our cultural DNA and is easily exploited. It's still going on today by terrorizing blacks, gays, refugees, and anybody else who doesn't pray your creed. If you can be made to think that the AM radio station and your Facebook feed that trans queers are a central problem for education, or that slavery was not at all the foundation of the Republic, you can be made to think just about anything. That is the whole point of the effort cultivated for so long. Art Cullen is the publisher and editor of the Storm Lake Times Pilot. He won the Pulitzer Prize for editorial writing in 2017 and is the author of the book Storm Lake, a chronicle of change, resilience, and hope from the Heartland newspaper. Our next editorial was written by Paul Krugman of the New York Times, the GOP's long war against Medicare and Social Security. Politically, the most crucial moment in President Biden's State of the Union address was his declaration that, quote, some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset every five years, unquote. Why did he say that? Maybe because Senator Rick Scott, when he was chairman of the National Republican Senatorial Committee, released a fiscal plan last year with the bullet point, quote, all federal legislation sunsets in five years, unquote. Seems straightforward, doesn't it? Despite of cries of lies from the floor, but right-wing news media, well aware that Biden hit a nerve, has gone into overdrive, insisting that his claim was false. Even some mainstream media figures have claimed that Biden was over the top. The basis for these denunciations, as far as I can tell, is the idea that calling a plan to sunset legislation a plan to sunset legislation is somehow misleading because voters don't know what sunset means. Indeed, just because the legislation authorizing a program comes to an end doesn't mean that program will die. Congress can always vote to reinstate it. But, of course, many Republicans do want to eviscerate these programs. To believe otherwise requires both willful naivete and amnesia about 40 years of political history. First of all, if Republicans had absolutely no desire to major cuts in America's main social insurance programs, why would they sunset them and thus create the risk that they wouldn't be renewed? As Biden might say, come on, man. And then there's that historical record. Two things have been true ever since 1980. First, Republicans have tried to make deep cuts into Social Security and Medicare every time they thought there might be a political window of opportunity. Second, on each occasion, 
they've done exactly what they're doing now, claiming that Democrats are engaging in smear tactics when they describe GOP plans using exactly the same words Republicans themselves used. So, about that history, it has been widely forgotten, but soon after taking office, Ronald Reagan proposed major cuts to Social Security, but he backed down in the face of a political backlash, leading analysts at the Cato Institute to call for a Leninist strategy, their word, creating a coalition ready to exploit a future crisis if and when one arrived. To that end, Cato created the Project on Social Security Privatization, calling for replacing Social Security with individual accounts, which George W. Bush tried to do in 2005. But then, however, Cato had quietly renamed the project. Privatization polled badly, and Bush insisted that it was a trick word used to scare people. So there's a history here, and there's a similar history for Medicare. Many people probably recall that Newt Gingrich shut down the federal government in 1995. I don't know how many people realize that Gingrich's key demand was that President Bill Clinton agree to large cuts in Medicare and Medicaid after Republicans gained control of the House in 2010. Paul Ryan began pushing for major cuts in spending. One key element was converting Medicare from a system that pays medical bills to a system offering people fixed sums of money to be applied to the purchase of private insurance, that is, vouchers. But many, though not all, supporters of the Ryan plan insisted that calling vouchers vouchers was a left-wing smear. So are people who claim that Biden was over the top unaware of this track record? Do they really not know that Republicans have spent more than four decades trying to find ways to undermine Medicare and Social Security? Are they unaware that there's a long history of Republicans whining that Democrats are engaged in smear tactics when they describe Republican policies using exactly the same words Republicans use themselves, until political consultants urge them to find euphemisms? Well, I don't think Biden is going to let up. He knows, as do his hysterical opponents, that his attacks are effective and he has the facts on his side. Oh, and one Republican who might be especially vulnerable to Democratic attacks over social insurance programs is Ron DeSantis. Before becoming Florida's governor, DeSantis enthusiastically endorsed Ryan's Medicare voucher proposal and declared that allowing seniors to retire in their late 60s was unsustainable. As governor, DeSantis has made headlines with culture war attacks on education and his opposition to public health measures. But in some ways, his biggest achievement, if you might call it that, has been blocking the expansion of Medicaid in his state under the Affordable Care Act. In so doing, he's leaving hundreds of thousands of Floridians with no realistic way to get health insurance and is leaving billions in federal funds on the table. True, Medicaid, like Medicare and Social Security, is means-tested, but it's also extremely popular. DeSantis's actions suggest that he's an ideologue who hates social programs on principle. So, go back to our original premise, when Biden suggests that some Republicans want to eviscerate key programs, he's right, and Ron DeSantis is almost surely 
one of the Republicans he's right about. Next, we have an editorial written by David French of the New York Times. The law is closing in on Trump. There are now three clear indicators that criminal probes of Donald Trump are rapidly reaching a conclusion. First, in Georgia, a special grand jury investigating his efforts to overturn the presidential election in the state has concluded its work. The Fulton County District Attorney, Fannie Willis, has indicated that charging decisions are imminent. Key parts of the grand jury report will be released this Thursday. Second, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office is reportedly presenting evidence to a grand jury regarding the accusation that Trump paid hush money to a porn actress known as Stormy Daniels before the 2016 election. Third, as the Times reported last week, the special counsel Jack Smith issued a subpoena to Mike Pence. The special counsel said it is investigating Trump's mishandling of classified information and efforts to interfere with the certification of the 2020 presidential election on January 6, 2021, and with the, quote, lawful transfer of power after the election. Pence is a direct witness to key events surrounding at least two of those subjects, January 6th, and the election interference efforts before January 6th. Pence is reportedly planning to challenge the subpoena on separation of powers grounds, claiming that his former role as president of the Senate was legislative and therefore entitles him to at least some protection from the Department of Justice's subpoena. But even if he mounts that challenge, issuing a subpoena to a former vice president is a significant step and not one likely to be taken for general information gathering purposes. Instead, as the former federal prosecutor Andrew McCarthy wrote in National Review, the subpoena indicated that a final charging decision was probably nearing, and the prosecutor was preparing to cross the Rubicon. If prosecution decisions are imminent, what principles should guide the prosecutors? What factors should they consider when deciding whether to charge a former president? When weighing the facts and the law, they should remember the rule of law and apply the rule of lenity. They should not, however, consider politics or the potential of mob violence. In short, the guiding prosecuting principle should rest in the old maxim, quote, let justice be done, though the heavens fall, unquote. The rule of law is easy to explain. America's Republican form of government does not create or permit a special class of citizens who are immune from legal accountability. The arguable exception is the serving president. It's the long-standing position of the Department of Justice that indicting a sitting president would impermissibly undermine the capacity of the executive branch to perform its constitutionally assigned functions. But Trump, of course, is no longer president. The United States has prosecuted a vice president, governors, members of Congress, and federal judges. The Supreme Court has held that presidents are subject to the legal process even when they occupy the Oval Office. Now, let's turn to the sports page for news of the wrestling competition in Des Moines yesterday. Battle for the 1A Crown. The story written by Jim Nelson of the Courier Sports Editor begins with a photograph of Don Bosco's Caden Knack as he competes against 
Starmount's Keaton Mahler during a Class 1A quarterfinal round of the IHSAA State Wrestling Tournament at Wells Fargo Arena in Des Moines on Thursday. Dateline Des Moines. 14 Northeast Iowa wrestlers advanced to the Class 1A state semifinals Thursday at Wells Fargo Arena. Among the best storylines is a developing race for the 1A title. Four-time defending state champion Don Bosco of Gilbertville, seeking to win five straight for the second time in program history. The Dons did it previously from 2005 to 2010. We'll try to hold off a strong challenge from longtime rival Nashville Plainfield when the semifinals commence on Friday. The Dons finished the quarterfinal round Thursday at Wells Fargo Arena with 87 points, 13 clear of the Huskies. Don Bosco has five semifinalists and five additional wrestlers still alive for podium finishes. NP has four semifinalists and three additional wrestlers in the con- consolations. Quote, I think we are battling for the most part, and we just need to keep building. Don head coach Chris Ortner said, Quote, This is really just the halfway point, so we still have another half of work to complete. Unquote. Making the semifinals for Don Bosco were Miles McMahon at 138, Caden Knack at 145, Kyler Knack at 152, defending champion Gerald Thury at 220, and Mac Ortner at 285. McMahon was the first to reach the semifinals as he won a huge head-to-head match over NP's Caden Wilkin building a 10-2 lead before holding on for a 10-5 win. Quote, it obviously feels good, but I have more matches to win, McMahon said. I'm looking for a bigger goal than just making the semifinals, unquote. McMahon's two wins this week are the first of his career at the state tournament. He went 0-2 at 145 last season. Quote, it feels good to make the semifinals, McMahon said. Last year was tough, but I knew I had to get better in order to improve and make the podium this year, unquote. Caden Knack followed McMahon to the mat and quickly found himself down 3-0 to zero to Starmont freshman Keaton Mahler. But Knack battled back, forced sudden victory, and then scored 25 seconds into the extra period to earn his third trip to the podium. Quote, I started a little slow, Knack said. I knew he was a good wrestler, but I had a lot of people back home that I could beat this kid, so I did. Quote, I knew I couldn't get flustered, Max said of the early defeat. One takedown does not win a match, and that one takedown was not going to define our match, and there was no way I was losing, unquote. Oatner said he likes Nack's fight. Quote, that just proves to him he can go get a takedown when he needs one, Ortner said. He really almost had one at the end of the match and then went and got one in the overtime. That was good effort by him. Unquote. Kyler Neck beat Ryan Steinledge of I-35, 7-3, to reach the semifinals, while Theory pinned Brady Davis of Makokoda Valley in 4 minutes 48 seconds at 2.20. Ortner followed with a 3-0 win over Keegan McMillan of West Sioux at 285. 
still alive for the Dons in the consolation quarterfinals, are Cole Frost at 113, Jackson Larson at 120, Andrew Kimball at 160, Jacob Theory at 170, and Landon Fernandez at 182. Quote, I feel pretty good, Schmidt said. Overall, I thought I wrestled a pretty good match in the quarterfinals. Quote, obviously, when you are little, you have big dreams, Smith said of being a four-time medalist. It was to be a four-timer state champion. Obviously, that didn't happen. But being a four-time medalist is pretty cool, unquote. And now, listeners, that's going to do it for today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, February 17th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. We want to remind you that you can access a recording of today's reading of The Courier and the other newspapers that we read around the state on our website, and that is iowaradioreading.org, and you can do that at any time. And we'd like to thank you for listening to your IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.